My name is Alyssa Sapard. I'm an artist and I'm currently in grad school working towards becoming an art teacher. Probably going to be a secondary art teacher. I'm Jessica Krupa. I live in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina. I am your friendly neighborhood school psychologist. Alyssa, Jesse, and I met in the sixth grade. We had a little group of us that was absolutely inseparable. And with some breaks here and there, we mostly kept in touch. Now, obviously, professionally, we took different paths. And the point of this podcast was to hear from open source people and also outside experts. But all of us are experts in our own way. And when it comes to the effect of technology on the earth, sustainability, climate change, that's something that's going to affect all of us. So I wanted you to hear from all of us. How do you feel about all the packaging that comes with your online purchases? It feels like, you know, the cost of ordering online and that convenience of it, of it arriving at your door and you don't have to get into a car and go anywhere or interact with any human being face-to-face is that you get a bunch of boxes and a bunch of those air bubble things and you gotta go and make a million trips to the recycling bin. We noticed that a lot you know, in 2020, like when everybody was ordering everything online, we got a lot of packages like that where it's just like, this doesn't seem like the correct size box for the thing that we ordered. Boxes are at least recyclable. So Mm. in the grand scheme of things, I feel less bad about getting a giant box than I do about getting one of those like plastic, weird, like mail packages. Like I know... Uh, Amazon and Target and, and retailers like those have that little button you can check to consolidate your order. So they'll say, like, if you click this button, it'll take a little bit longer for your order to get there, but we're just going to put it all in one box. You told me that this past Christmas, your family's Christmas looked very Amazonified because of the pandemic. And I'm curious about how you felt about that. I think I have two very distinct feelings about this. Yeah. My initial reaction in terms of being able to send packages was this is incredible because shipping is so expensive when you're shipping objects that weigh a lot. So being able to ship something to somebody already uh, wrapped in some semblance is a plus because Mm -hmm. it means that I don't have to like, ship it to some weird family member, ask them to wrap it or wrap it myself and then ship it again. That was really convenient. On the flip side, receiving a bunch of Amazon packages that were that weird like gift bag thing that it came with was really lackluster Christmas morning. Mm. Like I didn't realize how much like Christmas wrapping paper is important until all you have are all these Amazon gift bags to open. And then in terms of, you know, um, like taking pictures of the Christmas tree with all the gifts under it, it's like, well, normally there's all this Christmas wrap and it's pretty. And it's like this year, there's these weird bags. (laughs) Do you both have people in your family who learned to shop on Amazon? because of the pandemic and having to send Christmas gifts? 
Yeah. I think the only person that I know in my family who doesn't know how to use Amazon is my grandmother. But she always just sends a card to check. (laughs) 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 You know, she's not checking out. My birthday also fell kind of during the pandemic last year, like right Mm -hmm. after it had started. And um, my in-laws really don't, didn't do any online shopping at all whatsoever. And then the pandemic hit and they started doing quite a bit of online shopping. So I don't know that it was, I mean, I feel like Amazon is pretty, pretty self-explanatory, but there was a lot of questions that I got where it was like, you know, um, do you just connect any credit card you have to an account? Like, how do you figure out what, what's safest to connect to this or whatever, those kinds of questions. That's really interesting. So the security of digital payments was still a concern. I've also been ordering a lot from Etsy. The packaging, when you're ordering from an independent, you know, online seller versus like an Amazon or a Target or whatever, is way different. There was a little handwritten note there. It was like way more economically packaged because she has to pay for shipping herself. You know, it's a very different experience. Um, and then for my mom's birthday this year, I ordered her a an art print off of Etsy. Mm-hmm. And I sent in the little message. It's like, do you want to leave a little gift message? Is this a gift? Yes. Do you want to leave a message? And it was like, hi, mom, happy birthday from Melissa. And I didn't find out until my mom got the print and it was delivered to her that the Etsy artist had written that little note herself. That's, <laughs> I guess, that's the difference when you order from somebody smaller independent and then you target or something. Everything Alyssa and Jessica talked about mirrored my own experience. I got both of these girls Christmas gift this year and the packaging was pretty crazy. A package that was meant for Alyssa got lost And yeah, technology powered all of my gift giving, especially when I couldn't go actually shop for gifts. And so I got really curious about what this looks like on a massive scale. And so I asked an expert. I can give you numbers in terms of how much waste has been created 2020 compared to 2019, for example. But what I do fear and what I do um, think it's important to highlight is that the packaging is the the physical tangible waste is one part of the problem, which it is really bad. And I think the invisible part of the problem might even be worse in the in the the mindset of single use disposables or in the mindset of of giving just permission or not questioning or challenging the normalcy of 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 waste. There's a principle that we use that I use in my life personally and that future meets present and that's humans as nature, which is a precondition, I think, to approaching problem solving. If you if 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 the if your contextual worldview is is one that nature is a resource, it's just purely exploitative, as opposed to humans as nature, we're a part of it. We need to support those life support systems and make sure that they can stay in cycles because that's what nature does. That's Amir Jandali. He is an old friend of mine from when I lived in New York City. He is an environmental activist and so many other things. Hello, everybody that's that's listening. My name is Amir. I'm currently coming to you from Denver, but I live in Brooklyn. Um, my company is called Future Meets Present. And 
In short, what we're working on here is to create the world's vision board, if you will. Um, I like to export the idea or the vision of what the world will look like, essentially what the world needs to look like once we've solved our climate challenges. So when the Paris Accord is met, when the sustainable development goals are achieved, what does that world look like? We create visualizations, um, digital conferences that reflect a sustainable future products and um, different suite of things. What Amir is describing, this idea of getting used to the way something is and being more comfortable with that paradigm applying in other spaces, definitely resonated with me. After all, open source software is a little bit like that in the sense that once you get used to it, it's hard to imagine other ways and vice versa. And that's where the importance for this conversation comes in. So if you, if you imagine one trash bag out on the curb, it represents one trash bag in your visible immediate perspective. In reality, it represents multiple trash bags because of waste that was created upstream. Um, I've read statistics that it's like so impossible to calculate something like that. But if you see a trash bag, chances are maybe it's at least double that of waste that was created in the production, manufacturing process, delivery, all of that kind of stuff. So that's first and foremost, something to remember that it's not, everything is not face value and we're not actually paying true cost for anything. And in terms of the life cycle, we really want to like, just take a step back and according to our first principle, realize that when a leaf falls from the tree in the forest, it gets that, that, that excretion, that waste, that disposal is, is food. It's one organism's output is another's input. So it remains in a circle. Right now we live in a linear system where we extract something, we process it, we deliver it, we use it, we dispose it. It's a dot that goes to another dot. It, it, we have no way of bringing that dot back in a way that's, that's truly sustainable. If we're not aware of that and we're not aware of the solutions that are presenting themselves, then yes, I think you're right. Then it can be that much easier to buy a pack of 30 water bottles and bring them home and drink out of plastic bottles at your house as opposed to just filling up your cup. Okay, but surely there are solutions. I asked the mayor about that. Since the problem is a systemic problem, there's no such thing as an isolated issue. Um, just like there's no such thing as an isolated organism in nature. And so the solutions therefore inherently need to be systemic as well. And we see evidence of that, I think, across the board. There are models of, there are models of solutions across this whole system. So you think about, A, where the material comes from. So if we think of this as a, as a process, there has to be some sort of material extraction. There has to be some manufacturing of the material. There has to be some delivery of that material to the consumer, to the user. The user is going to use it, and then there's going to be an afterlife. So it's sort of four stages, extraction, manufacturing, delivering. is oversimplification for sure. But extraction, manufacturing, delivery, uh, use, and disposal, I guess five. And we're seeing solutions uh, across all of them in different sectors. So I think what's, for example, um, take, like food takeout delivery. People just want their food. They don't necessarily want that extra styrofoam, the extra ketchup packets or the straws or the 10,000th pack of plastic cutlery that's going to be stuffed into the back of your cutlery drawer 
just in case, you know? So there's a really cool startup in New York called Deliver Zero that is starting to do that. You just order your, just like you go on Seamless, you go on Deliver Zero and you get your food and it just comes in reusable containers. Taking a step up from that, you have Loop. So if you go to loopstore.com, they basically revive the milkman model. What happens is you order your your laundry detergent, you order um, Clorox wipes, you order um, all kinds of different things and it comes to you in this giant reusable tote and they're all reusable packages. Instead of throwing your package into the way, into the trash can, you put that package back into the tote, zip it back up. It has a prepaid UPS label on it and, and it goes for it. And I tried it myself and it was, it was really awesome. But again, as we said, this solution has to be systemic. So that's not, there's no way to expect that the whole world is going to switch over to having reusable things. That's not realistic at all. I'm curious, how did you get into this? Was there a spark moment? that made you passionate about this or did it grow over time? Has it been this way for as long as you can remember? There was a couple and then it just grew and evolved from there. It's like that first sort of heartbreak that opens, opens you up and then it just keeps evolving and flowing. I was inspired by a documentary that I watched about plastic bags. Um, while I was in New York going to grad school, I was walking, I think through Times Square and I saw a billboard about the um, Adidas parlay for the oceans shoes. It's the shoes that Adidas makes that are uh, made out of ocean plastic. And I saw those shoes and it just occurred to me that it was just super matter. It was like very obvious that this is what the future is going to be like, that all companies are just going to use recycled materials. And, and I just looked at that billboard and I was like, oh, this is, that, this is what it looks like when the future meets present. And it just became a, a hashtag that I would use every time I would see, for example, like um, Burger King promoting a plant-based burger or, or a company that's phasing out um, styrofoam or whatever. Whenever I would see little things like that, I'm like, oh, okay, we're getting a little closer. Amir's passion for environmental sustainability has always been absolutely contagious to me. And I knew that he would be someone to interview here because what we're illustrating is that technology is touching every single aspect of our lives, not just business, but also the types of activism and social change that we're trying to engage in. Here's something that I really think you need to hear about the intersection of what we're doing. So let's uh, dig a little bit into the cross-section of where we are. Are you using any open source software in your work and activism that you know of? I, I couldn't tell you. And maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Maybe it's like the open source community is doing their job because I mean, like just, just like good design, good design is invisible, right? Like, so maybe, you, I don't know, you tell me. Yeah, I think that's entirely possible. There's a conversation that I'm fascinated by, which is the idea that the contributors to the open source ecosystem have a hard time conceptualizing that many of our users don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And why should they, right? What we need is mass adoption, like you're saying, and improvement, but not every single person is going to know the nuts and bolts of every single thing, right? I'm curious about the way you said that good design is invisible. Is good design also mostly not something that designers expect everybody to understand and appreciate? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the appreciation will just come from the function. If something just works really well, if you just sit down in a chair and it's just like, I'm really comfortable, like maybe you don't even notice it. You just continue your conversation that you're having with somebody seamlessly. The lighting in the space 
um, yes, you might con- con- consciously look and be like, wow, this is like really beautiful lighting. But the goal is that you just walk in and your life is just enhanced. Bracelet Tote is your product that works against that single-use plastic bag problem by offering people the opportunity to wear a plastic bag and always have one on hand. I did see that it's a Squarespace site and it's Squarespace is one of the, quite honestly, most incredible content management systems and e-commerce systems that is proprietary. I'm curious about how you went about that choice decision and how you're feeling about it now. I will completely 100% confess that I was seduced by their subway ads. That's it. And and it's served me fine up till now, but honestly, like I've been a little frustrated with just some, you know, you can't resize a, a picture inside Squarespace. Like you kind of have to just add blocks around it and then resize those blocks to kind of hopefully get the size that you want. I'm kind of curious, open source or not, who cares? What other digital tools are powering your work? My biggest asset is Miro. M-I-R-O, and it's um, a collaborative whiteboard tool, um, just a huge blank canvas, and you can zoom in, you can zoom out, you can just drop photos in there. It's basically like Keynote meets um, Prezi, but just way better. I use Flowdesk instead of MailChimp. It's beautiful and easy to use, um, reasonably priced and allows unlimited emails. Um, I use Photoshop. What else do I use frequently? Gather is the platform where I produce and build digital events. Gather has an interesting model. What you imagine is, imagine you start playing Zelda or Super Mario, like old school Zelda, and you're walking around the map. And then imagine your Zelda character walks up to another character and then suddenly their camera appears, their video screen appears. So it combines Zelda and Zoom in a proximity-based interaction um, way. So if our character walks away from each other, then I no longer see you. And so gather themselves, they don't actually make those maps that you walk around. They rely on map makers such as myself. I am a product manager by trade. I think I mentioned that in the beginning of every episode, or at least Ali does. And when we talk about product management, we talk about the importance of talking to our users. Ultimately, we're making software that people are going to use across all applications. And When environmental sustainability is one of the, if not the biggest problem facing our world today, doesn't it make sense to make sure that we're serving those users, right? I hope this episode gives you a lot to think about, about how technology is powering the solutions to some of our biggest problems. This is season one of the Open Source Economist, and I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I did. Tell me, tell us uh, where we can find you. Um, futuremeetspresent.com. That's the spot. And if you're an Instagrammer, um, at Amir Jandali, A-M-E-R-J-A-N-D-A-L-I. And also the same thing on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, thank you for, for that share. I, I actually, I don't know if we have, if you want to spend a minute, I have a question just. Just kidding. We talked about Zelda. I guess here's an Easter egg. And what is, so what, how, how does something being open source or not impact me or impact the world? Or what do I need to know about something being open source? That's a fascinating question. And the real answer, it doesn't. We as open source communities, and 
When I say open source communities, I'm talking about the fact that a lot of open source software is built out in the open and anybody can plug in. So it's a very interesting model. When you have something like Squarespace, you have the Squarespace company putting it together, right? Something that is open source, like the things you mentioned, Linux, WordPress, things like that, get built in an open community. So if I can write PHP and I see that something in WordPress could use an improvement, I can submit that improvement and say, look, I fixed this thing. And someone in the WordPress contributor review team would be able to say, oh, yeah, that's a pretty good idea and plug it in. And so this model of building software is newer than the proprietary model. We've had soft proprietary software since the very beginning of software. That's the thing that we first invented. And we explore the way that when it comes to software, it's not really a limited resource, right? I can send you the code I wrote, and now we both have the code. It's not like me sending you an apple where when I have the apple and then I give it to you, I no longer have an apple. And so more and more companies are starting to realize this and figure out the ways that it can generate cost savings, one, but two, also accelerate innovation because we're not doing double work, right? We've created something and we're building upon it and different people are building different stuff upon it as opposed to, say, if you want to create something to make websites with, you're starting all the way from the beginning to make your own thing and sell it. What are the um, boundaries or thresholds of that original source code that maintain its original integrity or mission or vision? Or what is there? Is there language around this? There absolutely is. That's such a cool question. Ultimately, what has happened as this has sort of grown since the late 70s or so is different licenses have come out that get attached to the source code that specifies how you can use it. So a lot of the time, say you have, there is such a thing as an open source version of Photoshop. It's called GIMP. And when you install it on your computer, you have a terms of use, like the ones that you say, yes, they accept the terms and conditions on other apps. And the terms of use will usually have a license that is a certain type of open source license. At this point, the open source ecosystems have regulated themselves, so to say, and agreed on the creations of certain licenses. So they go from most open to most restrictive. There is a license type and it has a name. It's the MIT license that says, you can do whatever you want with this. And then it goes into other aspects. So you can do whatever you want with this, but you must credit the original creator. And the, so you define certain conditions, exactly, I guess. Like, exactly. You okay. essentially create a contract about how it can be used. And the most restrictive one is the GNU GPL, which is really interesting. It says, if you make anything with this, your result must also be open source. And so that starts to create an interesting space that just now is being legally tested. So this idea that if you take something like that and then you close it off, what law are you breaking? You're probably breaking contract law, maybe. And we're starting to see that pop up as well. Is 
And, and, and is by cre- setting certain conditions, does that, um, is that restrictive or is that a quality of uh, open source culture? Is that like, is that necessary? Like, do you need that? Or is it like a limit? It is a big question. There's no right or wrong answer. A lot of people that contribute to open source do it because they're passionate. Another aspect that we're exploring on the podcast is this idea that as open source has evolved and has gone from this free software hippie movement into the software powering a lot of really important for-profit business Mm, applications, right. right? So you mentioned Linux, that's the biggest example. And yet we haven't really figured out a way for the maintainers to be paid a sustainable wage. So a lot of people do it because they're passionate. They do it because they believe that contributing to open source software is the future because we're not repeating work, because it becomes accessible to people of lower income. We see that a lot of uh, open source software is especially used by people overseas and places that are developing uh, to really change lifestyles, right? And because it just takes an internet connection and the ability to apply, it does have a different dynamic than the things that we might pay for here. So here's the interesting thing, Christy, and and this is something that I've been looking for language around this for a long time. And then I really think I'm finding um, a crossover here between open source in a in a in a tech context and one in a, a philosophical and um, design entrepreneurial context in the sense that it makes the most sense to me, according to what future meets present means for it to be an open source concept or an open source um, idea or initiative or something like that. Cause it's like, I just, I feel like I'm really just sort of called to export it as a concept. I think when we think about the future, it's just so purely objective and finds meaning based on what the person uh, attributes to it. So if I say, what does the future look like? And just that, you know, now likely seven out of 10 people will just say, kind of a destructive vision. Right. And a few people might say, well, okay, like there also might be like all of this sort of stuff. And I'm under this philosophy and also this principle that your energy flows where your attention goes. And just like if you're riding a bike down the street and you see two potholes and a tiny path in between, you're not going to focus on the, you're going to see, you're going to be aware of the potholes and more so they're going to make you more actively pursuing the path in the middle. Mm -hmm. And so I, I need this perspective to exist in my life that there are solutions that are emerging at an exponential rate right now. And if we focus on those as what could be a, a, a model of the future and what does the future need to look like, not so much like what it could look like, but what does it need to look like? And what it needs to look like is so a, a solution state to all of the problems that exist now. And we know what all the problems are now, mm-hmm. which is a great thing. And so I, I want this to come to life in a particular form. I think having a particular style guide or a tone of voice or sort of this source code of the concept of future meets present is what I'm being called to define. And then, and then allowing like, just if an artist sees something like that, it's like, oh, that's super cool. Like, yeah, I'm like a, um, a collage artist. Let me see if I can create cool collages with like badass 
solar panels on top of all these buildings. Great. Then that source code is finding life in other people's autonomous expression. So with open source being this ethos that has gone from a few programmers identifying this problem with soft with source code into this massive phenomenon with, you know, it's it's plugging into commerce and business, you're starting to see the open source ethos applied to things ethos. beyond code. So right. for example, one of the very interesting ones is I interviewed the owners of a company that have open sourced, so to say, their HR manual. That's Tom and Noel, by the way, of the digital experience business model episode. So they invested in all of the procedures for codes of conduct, for payment, for all of these things. And every time a small business begins, mm. they have to figure all this stuff out. And they're an open source software company. They mostly focus on developing WordPress websites for people who are selling online and big brands and things like that. And so they're in that mindset. They pay a lot of their employees who build these sites for the brands to also take a couple of hours each month to give back to open source projects, things like that. Mm -hmm. So they said, this is goofy, right? If people are starting agencies, they should be able to just not reinvent the wheel, right? Here's an open source HR manual. You can take mm -hmm. this and do whatever you want with it. And what's interesting is there is this old guard mindset that would say, well, they're literally enabling competitors to prop up. And their approach to it is the open source ethos says that that is untrue because you can take my HR manual, but you can't take my revenue right? Your HR manual alone is not going to present the opportunity to recruit other clients or do things like that. Because the reality is that how we as clients and consumers work is that we go to where we're already doing business, right? No one in the world is going to say, well, this other company is using the same HR manual as human made. So I'm going to go over there. That doesn't happen. And so instead, they give back to the world, so to say, by preventing repeat work. It's really interesting. And we're exploring a lot of that, too. There are such a thing as there is such a thing now popping up as uh, open source patents. So when it comes to open source software, technically, these are copyrights and use licenses. Patents are a whole other separate thing. Inventions, can you act upon them, things like that. And so we are starting to see patent owners say, I own this patent and people can do whatever you want with it. And that seems completely antithetical to the point of a patent, right? But again, we're starting to recognize that in today's world, that's not what's creating your advantage. There's so many things going on that really it becomes a matter of application. So yeah, there are more and more ways to apply the open source ethos to things that aren't code. That's the real end. I hope that this podcast has brought up interesting questions for you. And most importantly, I hope that it has inspired you to think about the future. 10 years from now, all of this is going to look really different. Actually, a year from now, all of this is going to look really different. And 
we have to get excited. We have to be unafraid of uncertainty. And we have to be brave and make sure that these developments and these advances work for everybody. You can find me on Twitter at X-T-I-E Chirinos. You can also find me on my website. That's ChristyChirinos.com where you can learn more about this podcast and you can also learn about the work I've done and the types of consulting that I do today for companies trying to understand this landscape to grow, invest, and shape a positive future that they can be proud of. Thank you for listening. Learn how to support the Open Source Economist at opensourceeconomist.com. Even a monthly $5 contribution helps and gets you access to full, unedited interviews with our guests. This podcast was edited by Ali Nimmons. Thank you to Alice Young for creating our designs and to Chris Lemma for supporting our publishing costs. And of course, thank you to our individual contributors for helping us create this podcast. Have questions or feedback? Send them to email at christychirinos.com.